All right, Luke chapter 21, verse 5. You can head on over there on your paper Bible or on your device, your app, or we'll put it up on the screen for you. If you don't have a Bible of your very own, you may notice around the room we've got some baskets. And in the back, we've got some baskets uh, with Bibles in them. And uh, if you want one, that's for you to, to bring home. We'd be really excited for you to have uh, that copy. So while you're flipping over there, I'll tell you, when I was a teenager, I had this one youth leader that invested in my life, and his name was Keith Denman. And Keith was cool. He was an old hippie uh, musician, and he just loved teenagers and was investing in me and a bunch of my friends. And, and so I remember a few years back, after about a decade out of being out of touch with Keith, I just really felt like I need to call Keith and give him an update on where I am. I don't even know if he knows that I'm in Boston. I don't know if he knows that I'm a pastor. I really don't know. And through the powers of Facebook, I was able to find Keith and reach out to him and uh, just shared with him how much he uh, meant to me and, and who I am today because of his investment in my life as a teenager. And I was thinking about how, how cool this guy he was just so smooth. He was, a, he was in like a rock band. And, and uh, before he started going bald, he had great long hair. And it was really musical and taught me all kinds of stuff. And uh, he was hysterically funny, really witty. He was kind of a guy who was like a jack-of-all-trades. He could do everything. He was a good athlete. He was a good musician. He was good with cars. And he had this cool convertible. And, and, and he knew how to teach the Bible. And he taught me the Bible. And he was really lighthearted and, and, and fun to be around. And, and he would take me and a lot of my friends out on these adventures, you know, a lot of things that youth will do together. Uh, with groups, and so we'd go out, and we went whitewater rafting, and we went uh, rock climbing, and we even did this rappelling off of a train trestle. It was a shutdown train trestle, so don't worry. They shut it down, and, and we jumped off the train trestle. It was really, really fun, and, and, but I'll never forget that there was, there was this thing that happened with him where he, this switch would kind of go off, where, where he would go from, we'd be on these adventures, and he would go from fun-loving, light-hearted Keith to serious no-nonsense, Keith. And I remember at first, I was like, hey, man, lighten up. You're our pal. You, know, you, can't, you can't do that. And then, then I remember thinking about, okay, just, just recently, it happened to me a week ago, and we were preparing to take our teenagers here up to New Hampshire for, for winter retreat. And I was thinking about the fact that just in a couple of years, my son will be able to go. And I said, wait a second. <laughs> I hope we have some, some youth leaders who can get serious when they need to get serious, because I know my son, he'll be jumping off that bridge and not strapped up right. And, you know, and so I just was thinking about that. I got a little nervous. You know? I, hope, I hope we got some no-nonsense leaders as well, and you know, climbing off. Uh, climbing up rock walls and jumping off bridges and whitewater rafting in Maine and thing. And is, that, is that wrong of me to think about that? No. I think that's, that's appropriate. Well, that, that's what was happening with Keith. I realized I started to think back through the times when he would, that switch would go on. It was when it was very serious because our lives were in his hand. We're standing on the edge of a cliff or, or we're about to go down a class five rapid or something. And so that's when it, it kind of went on. And, and so I thought, okay, I guess I get that. That's, that's appropriate that makes c- complete sense. Well, over the past year and a half as a church, we've been going through the book of Luke, which is one of four biblical accounts of the life of Jesus. And we've been following Jesus around for quite a while now. And it's been a really awesome journey. We're going to finish up at Easter. And it's been, been just, just a great time together. We've seen the heart of Jesus. been been beautiful. But it's starting now. Have you felt this? It's starting to feel a little bit different, right? It's starting to feel heavy. It's starting to feel serious. And and so last week here we talked about this idea of of playing around with God, that we shouldn't play around with God, right? That he's he's not this kitten that we roll around on the floor with. 
He's the lion of Judah, the Bible will call him. And so, yes, he chooses to, to, to be gentle and gracious and loving with us, but we also can't forget in the midst of that that he is the all-powerful God of the universe. And so the, the tone is getting increasingly more and more serious at this point in, in the book, book of Luke. And, and, and what we've seen up until this point over the past chapter and a half or so is that he's calling to task those people who have been playing around with him. And, and so, yes, Jesus is lighthearted Jesus at times. He, he's Jesus who gives his boys nicknames. You're the rock. You're the, the sons of, of thunder. We've got party Jesus hanging out with Levi and, and, and going to, to the parties and, and sharing the hope that, that he has. We have hang out by the fire pit and shoot the breeze Jesus. We've, we've got these Jesus, but, but now he's getting really, really serious and really, really heavy. Why? Because over the past three weeks as a church, he has now landed in Jerusalem where it's all going to go down his arrest, his torture, his execution. These are the final days of the ministry of Jesus on earth. And in today's passage where we land is Wednesday afternoon of Holy Week, of of Passion Week. And so we're now within 24 hours of the arrest of Jesus and we're within 48 hours of the crucifixion of Jesus. And so he's, he's giving final warnings. There will be no more calls to follow me. There will be no more calls to receive my mercy and my grace. Instead, there will be stern warnings from Jesus. In fact, look at the headings, if you will, where, where you've landed in the scripture. Some of you have headings in your Bible that just kind of describe each section there. Beginning in verse 5, Jesus foretells the destruction of the temple. Next one, Jesus foretells of wars and persecution. Jesus foretells of the destruction of Jerusalem, the coming of God. Watch yourselves. I mean, these are pretty heavy headings because they're pretty heavy words. Now, my question is, are these appropriate? I mean, is this appropriate? I mean, come on, Jesus, lighten up. We love lighthearted Jesus. But when we consider where we're at in the journey, this is incredibly, incredibly appropriate. Read with me Luke chapter 21. We'll go five through seven for starters here. It says, And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be torn or thrown down. Now, all throughout chapter 20, we've been seeing Jesus really calling to task these religious leaders for for not for they would look the part externally but inwardly internally they would be prideful arrogant self-centered inconsistent with how they look on the outside and who they actually are in their heart and so then at the end of chapter 20 he has this this warning before all the people he turns from talking to the religious leaders and he now looks at all the people who are look to the religious leaders and he looks to them and he says you need to watch out for these guys you need to watch out for the scribes they they play dress up they wear religious garments they got all these long tassels but behind the scenes I need you to know they're devouring widows houses verse 47 they will receive a greater condemnation Do you feel the steam coming out of Jesus' ears and his nose, right? Is it appropriate? Yeah, it's appropriate. Jesus is concerned with the marginalized. Jesus is, in this instance, concerned with women, with widows in a culture that would oppress, oppress, oppress them. And then the very next occasion that is recorded, chapter 2, or chapter 21, verses 1 through 4, is 
a widow. So he's concerned with the widows. And what do you know? There's a widow. And she's putting in two small coins into this offering box. It's fractions of a penny worth really nothing. But Jesus will publicly commend this woman because she gave a huge gift in proportion to what she has And when you compare it to uh, all those rich people around here. And so that's, that's usually what will happen with the scriptures. We just kind of go there. We, that's kind of the extent of where we'll go with the, the story of the widow's might. Hey, look at the widow. Look at the amount she gave in proportion to what she had. That's, that's great giving. And we should do that. That's, that's true. Jesus did commend her. However, there is so much more happening here in the, the greater context of this passage. And so we need to kind of pan out a little bit and see what's happening. Let's, let's think through it again. Chapter 20, he's saying you just play with God. You just play with God. You abuse people. Namely, these widows. Then you get into uh, chapter 21. Oh, hey, look, there's a widow. And she gave everything that she has to your corrupt system. And then verses 5 and 6, people are saying, well, look how beautiful the temple is. And he says, yeah, it's beautiful, but I'm going to tear it down to the ground. I'm going to tear it all down to the ground. And there will not be left one stone on top of another. I'm tearing it all down. And was Jesus lying about that? It all comes crumbling down. It's exactly what happens. 35, 40 years later, Rome comes in, lays siege on Jerusalem, and every single stone is cast down. Literally, the fires of Rome were so hot that the gold that was on the walls melted off and seeped into the the cracks in between the stones. And so in order to get at the gold, any stone that was left, I mean, they crumbled down, but any stone that was still left standing on top of another, they would take that stone down to get the gold in between the cracks. And so literally every stone was thrown down, literally not a stone left on top of another. That's historical fact. And 35 to 40 years prior, this man who claimed to be God, verse 6 says, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So this book is true. Just another nugget to add to your wrestling with. Is this true? Can I trust this? Yes, this man is more than a man. He is God. He is God and what he says is what happens and so often we will simply now take this reality that the temple came down in AD 70 historically speaking and 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 kind of view it simply as a theological necessity well that that needed to happen since the temple is not needed anymore and Christ is the temple and Christ is in us but listen the 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 temple being torn down is even more than just a theological necessity notice verse 6 the temple isn't simply dismantled it says that the stones were thrown down it wasn't like, hey, let's just kind of dismantle this thing because we don't need it anymore. No, the stones were, were thrown down. It's the wrath of God. And it's rightful, righteous wrath at how we tend to play with him and how these religious leaders played with him. And they weren't taking him seriously at all. They were relying on self. They were playing the religious game or, or they were playing like, like many of us do at times, the, the, the church scene but no real heart for God or, or ignoring the commands of God while coming here and saying, yeah, I want to live for you, Jesus. I'll worship you, but I have no intention of submitting my life to you. God's wrath is real at that. It's, it's righteous and rightful at that. Skip ahead to, to verse 20 then. Skip ahead to verse 20. He says, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, 
Then know that its desolation has come near. And then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are inside the city depart and let not those who are out in the country enter. For these, days of, these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. Verse 24, they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles, Rome, and until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled do you hear this so verse 22 these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written so days of vengeance that's wrath fulfill all that is written theological necessity it's both it's both there verse 23 for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people it's heavy so what does this mean for us? Because Jesus here says wrath against this people. However, we're not this people. I don't know that any of us in here hopefully have built religious systems that oppress the poor. We don't have special costumes we wear to church and have tassels and try to look a part that we don't actually have. But do we play? Do we play with God? We have to ask that question of our of ourselves. We have to ask God as we ended last week, God, search my heart. Do I, do I play with you? Is this real? Because trust me, if you've read the Bible, it says that you're not a Christian. You're not a Christian because a true Christian's life is changed by Jesus when they trust in him and when they place faith in him and he gets up inside of you. You're changed. You're different. Do you play with God? It only will do damage and eternal damage to you to continue to play this game. So does this apply to us? And then others of us in here, we, you know, we take him seriously. And I'm not here to cause you to question whether you're right with God or question your salvation. But you're a Christian, you take him seriously. And now we live in our Jerusalem, in our reality, in a world where people are far, far from God. And, and, and we know that Ultimately, justice will be executed. And so what do we do then? Wherever we're at, what do we do? And so for the remainder of our time together, here's the question that I want us to, to answer. And I'll phrase, it, I'll phrase it this way. What to do when the world falls apart? What to do when the world falls apart or as the world is falling apart around us? Let me show you a page out of the Illustrated London News for you. Um, I like looking at old historical documents and things, and, and it says uh, these are the brave heroes of the Titanic. These guys, April 27, 1912 is this paper, and this is the Birkenhead Band, the orchestra for the Titanic. And, and you know their story. They're very famous for playing music to calm the passengers as the, the ship sank all the way down, and all these guys died. And so they had to decide, what are we going to do as this thing is going down? What are, what are we going to do as the, the ship is sinking? Here's what we're going to do. We're going to play music. And we're going to help these people be calm. And, and I don't know what I would do. I, I'm thinking maybe I would put down the cello and <laughs> maybe hop on it like a boat or something. I think a cello would float. I don't know. But we have to ask ourselves, what are we going to do as, if the Bible is true and the Bible says that this place is 
it's not going to end up good. It's going to be bad before it gets good. So what do we do as the world falls apart? Now, let me acknowledge the fact that this sounds a bit crazy. <laughs> I'm not naive to that. Let me acknowledge that I know it can sound a bit over the top. I mean, come on, Josh. Societies are advancing. Culture is being made. This sounds a little bit crazy, over the top, gloom and doom, end of the world stuff. I don't want to be that guy. I know you don't want to be that guy or, or, or girl. But listen, because we don't want to be that guy or that, that lady, many Christians lack any sense of urgency about eternal things, about spiritual reality. Let me ask you some questions. According to our Bible, Christians, are there things unseen in a spiritual realm? Yes. According to our Bible, is God present even though we don't physically see him? Yes. According to our Bible, is this world going to end? Yes. 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 At some point, yes. And so is this urgent with this news? Yes, it's incredibly urgent. And so as the world falls apart, what are we to do? What are we to do? Hopefully you're you're realizing by now that I'm, I'm kind of being snarky with this phrase, what to do as the world falls apart, because it's not visibly crumbling around us, but it's, it's falling apart in that it's corrupted by sin. And if you look around the world, it's broken. Things are bad. People are hurt. You feel it this week. I know it. I'm telling you, when I was younger, the thought of eternity freaked me out. I still have this conversation like every other day with my kids. I don't know if I want heaven, Dad. That's forever. <laughs> and I was there too. But now I'm like, please, Lord, just come. I mean, this would be great to be done, you know. And some of you are feeling that. The promise of the Bible is that, that the world crumbles, but then he makes all things new and he restores and heaven comes to earth. And the dwelling place of God is with man, and it's going to be incredible. But before that, the Bible tells us that God is going to judge the living and the dead, 1 Peter 4, 5. And so Jesus is going to come again, and he's going to judge those people who are alive now. He's going to judge those people who have already died before he returns. And we don't know which one we're going to be. Who knows? Time will tell. However, he judges injustice. A lot of us like God until we hear about justice, us Westerners. What's interesting is people who are Easterners, they don't really like the idea of the grace of God. They say, well, that's not just. It just kind of depends on where you're at, your, your geographical upbringing and, and kind of how you grew up. But, but he's both, somehow perfect. The perfect judge and the, the perfect one to, to show mercy and grace and, and love. And until the justice comes and, 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 and we then can say, I trust in Jesus, every single breath that, that we take, every single day that the earth is sustained, because the Bible will tell us in Hebrews chapter 1, 3, that he upholds all things together by the word of his power. Colossians 3 says he's holding all things together. So every single second, 
Every single breath that you breathe is the very grace of God because the Bible says he's slow to anger. He's abounding in loving kindness. He's, he's withholding the, the judgment until the whole world can hear. That's what the Bible says. I tend to think we're getting closer than we could possibly imagine because of the internet and the, how global we are right now. How connected we are. We can get the gospel to the whole world. And so it's getting closer and closer and closer and closer. I'm not going to make any kind of predictions whatsoever. I was in a church when I was a teenager and the pastor said, before Y2K comes, Jesus is coming back. And I so wanted to go knock on his door. The morning after, January 2nd. So what to do when the world falls apart? first one is this. I think it's most obvious if you're a note taker, one of four. We avoid destruction. (laughs) What do you do? You avoid destruction. Know that every single stern warning that Jesus gives us, as much as you don't want to hear it, is a plea for you to avoid destruction. It comes from a heart of love. And I now feel this now that I'm a dad. In no way do I enjoy punishing my kids. (laughs) In no way do I love telling my kids, you can't do this. But is it important for me to do? Yeah, obviously. So occasionally we'll plan a trip. Hey, we're going to go downtown. We're going to do something fun. And I always have to grab, especially the boys, their faces and squeeze them together and say, boys, now you listen carefully. Are you listening to me right now? We are going downtown. We're going to the aquarium. It's going to be a lot of fun, but you cannot wrestle next to the yellow line at Forest Hills. Somebody's going to fall off the platform and get flattened by a train. And you can't say I didn't warn you. <laughs> We're pushing each other around, hanging out near the yellow line. If you don't, I'm going to put a kitty leash on you. Any parent ever done that, by the way? You ever put a kitty leash? I, I really needed to, but I just was too prideful to strap my kid in. But uh, you did that, Ryan. That was cute. You guys did that. Anyhow. <laughs> oh, man. Do my kids like the warning? Do they? No, of course not. Of course not. It's my nature to play with them, to sit in my chair and let them come up on my lap and and snuggle with with dad. It's my nature to laugh with them and to goof off with them and to stuff their mouths full of ice cream. It's my nature. I, I love to do that. However, there are instances where I have to be stern. Because if I'm lighthearted about this, hey guys, just so you know, don't don't be crazy on the platform. Are they gonna listen? No. No. They're not going to take me seriously. Jesus has to be stern. Chapter 20, and now in 21, verses 1 through 6, destruction is coming, wrath is coming, judgment is coming, and it's just. However, if you will abandon your self-reliance, if you will abandon your religiosity trying to earn God's favor, and you would just trust in me, you can be made right with God. And that's his message for all of us. That yes, God has wrath, but God has also become a human, Jesus, 
And he lives this life that we live sinless as the only sinless human of all time, undeserving of wrath. Yet he goes to the cross and on the cross he absorbs the wrath of God. That's why we sing the song, the wrath of God is satisfied in Christ alone. My hope is found that he, he dies for you and for me so that justice happens and mercy happens. This is a beautiful instance of, of justice and mercy colliding. It's incredible. Incredible. That's the, the cross. And so you can avoid destruction by trusting in Jesus. That's what sets our faith apart from every other faith system out there. Is you don't do anything. You just trust in what he's done. It's beautiful. How do you avoid destruction? You trust in Jesus. And I want to invite every single one of us to that today. If you have not trusted in Jesus, trust in Jesus and his work on the cross. Knowing that he died, yeah, but he came back to life. So we don't worship a dead guy. We worship somebody who, who accomplished it all and is alive and is seated at the throne as king of kings and lord of lords. So, so number one, you've got to avoid destruction. That's obvious. Obvious we should avoid destruction. And I call you to that. The next thing that we must do in the midst of this crazy world is stay focused. We've got to stay focused. Look, look at verses 7 through 9 now. It says, and they asked him, teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, see that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am he. And the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified. For these things must first take place. But the end will not be at once. So Jesus says, yeah, I hear your question. And let me just tell you what you really need to be concerned about is stay focused. Stay focused on me. And I think that's probably a good message for many of us in this room who are Christians. Stay focused on Jesus. There are so many things in this world that are pulling at your attention. And I promise you, you are not going to stand before the Lord in heaven and say, man, I wish I put more energy into my job. You're not going to stand before the Lord in heaven and say, man, I wish I saved more and had a better retirement. You're not going to stand before the Lord in heaven and say, man, I could have had a bigger house had I only moved to that neighborhood and done that. No, it's not going to happen. Stay focused on Jesus. He says, there there are going to be people who come in my name and they're going to claim to be the Messiah. Do not be deceived. Be focused on the real Messiah. Be focused on Jesus. Everything that I said it's going to happen and you're going to know and, and you stay focused on me now 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 i don't think many of us in here have encountered false messiahs i know some of you have people who claim to be god i had a friend in college her dad went nuts moved to a desert fasted for 40 days came back and said i'm i'm jesus so i have seen it i don't know that that's the norm for for many of you but i think there are some false messiahs among us There are some things, a person maybe, an ambition, a a possession for you that has replaced Jesus in your heart. That's a false Messiah. That's a false God. Remember Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He says, you can lose focus, guys, on me. You can be a disciple and still lose focus on me and start pursuing lesser things over me. In fact, Jesus is telling them, knowing that this time next week, he will physically not be with them anymore. 
This time next week, next Wednesday, I will physically not be with you. You'll get 40 days of appearances. I'll come back here and there, but I'm not going to be walking every second with you like we have been for the past three years. So it's going to be easy for you guys to lose sight of me. And for us, we know it really well. It's easy for us to lose sight of him. But could, could there be some practical things that you could maybe put in place in your life to help you to not lose sight of Jesus? In fact, I think God has commanded some practical things for us to help us to not lose sight of him. Do not forsake the assembling together as is the habit of some. In other words, he says, Hebrews, you need to be in church. It's the habit of some to forsake it, but I'm telling you, you're going to need this regular occasion, even if you don't feel like it. Even if you had a late night last night, you be in church. For us, when we go on vacation, we go to church because we don't want to, we don't mess up this habit at all. It needs to be something that we do. Do not forsake the assembling together. You're not going to feel like it all the time. Prioritize being at church. Why? Because you're going to need to keep focused on Jesus because all these other days of the week, they're going to be pulling at you, pulling at you, pulling at you. Don't forsake it. That's a good practice. How about Christian relationships? You have got to have Christian relationships. Becky and I were just talking about this week. Time and time and time again, when I see people drifting and I start to kind of evaluate, God, what went wrong? How how are they so far from you? It's almost always a lack of Christian friendships. Spiritual intimacy, Pastor David called. I love that. We need spiritual intimacy with people. We need people who know us and they can see you and they say, I know you're not doing well. I know you're drifting. Come on back, brother. Come on back. I love you. I care for you. We need that. We could go on and on and on about things, but I want you to think about what are some things. First, what's commanded in the scripture. Maybe you want to get creative as well. That's fine. What are some things that you can put in place in your life to help you from drifting, to help you stay focused on Jesus? You you need it. You need it. Another thing Jesus speaks to is wars and, and tumults. He says, don't let these things terrify you. Some of you, I, I've talked to some of you, you, you turn on the news and you see what's going on. You go, oh my goodness, I, I'm horrified. And you're genuinely horrified as to what's going on all around you. He says, don't, don't, don't go there. Remember that I've made a way to restore it. Stay focused. I'm in control. Stay focused on me. If you keep your eyes on the prize, on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. You keep your eyes on the finish line. The stuff around here, as the old song says, the things of earth will grow strangely dim in light of his glory. It's like the camera. One thing is crisp and everything else is blurry. If you keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, the stuff in the world grows blurry, blurry. And so, don't let it terrify you. Don't let it terrify you. He is restoring all things. Occasionally, Christians can become so gloom and doom. Oh, it's so awful out there. It's terrible. It's a, it's a God-forsaken world. Listen, stay focused on Jesus. Don't focus on all the stuff that's happening as a result of sin. Focus on Jesus. He said it would happen. He said this will be a sign for you. Read on. Look at 10. And then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes in various places and famines and pestilences. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and the prisons. And you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. 
Settle it therefore in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. That's, that's pretty heavy stuff. And for, for these guys, it actually happened. It's just a continued picture of the world falling uh, apart. Nation against nation. Kingdom against kingdom. Earthquakes and, and, and famine and, and pestilence. Is this stuff happening? Yeah, of course this stuff is happening. First Thessalonians chapter 5 says it will continue to happen like labor pains. How does labor pains work? get closer and closer and closer together. Is that happening? It seems like it's getting closer and closer and closer together. Does that mean that Jesus is definitely returning tomorrow? Not necessarily. Because we don't know how close is the, the close as they can get. Right? So don't go making predictions. I remember when I was a teenager, I also uh, was in the same church, and I, I was helping out one day, trying to do a little service, and and I was in the basement, they asked if we could clean out this room full of books, and I cleaned out this room full of books, and I found a book, no lie, 88 Reasons Why Jesus Will Come Back in 1988. <laughs> and it was like 1997. I said, well, that one, and it sold millions of copies. I remember in 2011, for those of you guys who lived around here, there were billboards everywhere. May 21, the end of the world. Remember that one? They came down the next day. Jesus warns us. He says, when? It's not for you to know. Don't go making predictions. None of that. Instead, what do you do? You do the things we've been talking about. And one of the things here that he says we need to do is we need to, we need to rescue others. That's your number three. You need to rescue others. Look at verse 13. He says, this will be your opportunity to bear witness. This is going to be your opportunity to, to bear witness. He says, as things seem to be growing increasingly crazy and, and uncertain in our world, he says, you are to bear witness. Now, what does a witness do when a witness gets on the witness stand? He or she is going to simply tell their story. They don't know everything. They don't have it all figured out. But they're going to tell their story. They're going to say, here's what, what I know. And some of you don't bear witness. Because you're like, I don't know enough. I don't, I don't know the Bible. I don't know how to contradict everything. And so you don't bear witness at all. Tell what you know. And, and the best place that you can start, instead of me saying, okay, everybody come to my house tomorrow. And we're going to have a big class. And I'm going to train you on how to, to share your faith. The best thing that you can do is tell your story. Here's what God has done in my life. I don't know everything be so much better if they faced a, a person like you who was humble and said, I don't know everything, but I know that there's an answer. And so when they give you something that you don't know the answer to, you can go do your research and go, go study a bit and come back and say, I, I've served you in this way and here's what I know now. I've learned more. I've studied more, but bear witness. First Peter chapter 3.15, I love this. It says, always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that you have. And do it with gentleness and respect. You've got to be prepared. You've got to be looking to give an answer, to give an account, to share. Here's where the hope that I have comes from. Here's how I can have hope in tumultuous days. You don't need a science experiment to prove that God is real. 
You just need to bear existence, bear, bear witness. You need to say, here's what I know. Here's what God has done in me. In fact, he even says in verse 14, you don't need to have it all figured out what you're going to say. Doesn't mean that you shouldn't study. Doesn't mean that pastors shouldn't go to seminary. Doesn't mean that you shouldn't try to grow in your understanding of the scriptures. It does mean that when you don't know everything, God's still going to help you. Have you ever been in a position where, where you're, you're talking with somebody and then it seems like, oh my goodness, where did the words come from? And it was God the Holy Spirit breathing in you words to say. Have you ever been there? You look back and you say, I, I do it all the time. I talk to my wife and she says, so tell me, how'd it go? I, I don't know what, what I said. <laughs> it was just, I was talking and it made sense and it was the Lord. It was the Lord. I was prayerful uh, going into this February vacation. We're just coming off of February vacation. We still have people coming back from their trips. The kids are out of school and and I was really prayerful because I was bringing my family up to Vermont, and we have some, some family up there. They don't know the Lord, and we were staying with them, and, and uh, I mean, these guys are Vermonters to the core. I mean, everything is organic, free range, you know, they have, they have uh, maple syrup all over the house, you know, I mean, just Vermonters to, to the bone. And also, as Vermonters to the bone, they're constantly talking politics and the presidential race, and they love Bernie. Bernie is the man. And, and so I just knew going into this, we are going to be talking in the midst of this presidential race. We're going to be talking about Bernie. And so I went in and I just was prayerful and I was, uh, went in and, and spent time with them and conversed with them. And, and uh, we went skiing with the kids and came back and talked a little bit more. And, and I had some opportunities to express how I don't put my faith in Bernie or Hillary or Donald or the, the Ted Cruz or any of those guys. My hope is in Jesus. My hope is in Jesus. And the world needs to see that our faith is relevant to the realities around us. The world needs that. Now, the, the church in America has been so hung up on this word relevant for so long. And I think we've got this whole relevant word backwards. And so that a, a relevant church is a church that, you know, their, their music parallels pop music, or they have great lighting and fog machines, and it's a, a great show. And I, I tend to think that might actually be irrelevant, because who cares, right? Who cares? Here's what relevance is. I looked at the definition. Relevance defined is bearing upon or connected with the matter at hand. Pertinent. That's relevant. And the matter at hand that people actually care about is social injustice. The matter at hand that people actually care about right now is the pain that they're feeling in their heart, the depression, my anxiety, my, my hurt, my broken marriage, my, my parenting, my uh, poverty around us, the war uh, around us, racial injustice, how everything just seems so screwed up all the time. I mean, we could go on and on about what people actually care about, what's actually relevant, what's actually pertinent, and we get to bear witness to these things, whether it's wars around us, whether it's, it's, it's poverty, whether it's injustice, whether it's pain, whether it's some kind of natural disaster, we get to bear witness to, here's the hope, it's Jesus, it's Jesus, and he's the rescuer, and so we have to be rescuing others, always, we have to rescue others, that's why he has us here. And so many people all over the world hate Americans. They hate Americans. 
Because while they're living as refugees, while they're worried about clean water, while they're worried about how they're going to put food on the table for their, their family, while their nation is ravaged by war, we're living luxurious life. And we turn off the news and we turn on Netflix and we don't care. And so they hate Americans, many people all over the world. How about followers of Jesus? Let's show them that we care. Let's pay attention to what's happening all around the world, the injustice, the pain, what people are feeling. And let's show them the relevance of the gospel, of the good news of Jesus on these things. Let's be busy seeking and saving the lost instead of feeding our appetites for success or our, our, our stomachs or, or building bigger houses and getting nicer cars and building careers. All okay things. But don't do these things to the neglect of the mission that God has called you to go and to make disciples all over the world. If we have the ability to save some because we have the message of Jesus, we have the lifeboat, and we don't, how pathetic are we? How pathetic are we? Thank you, Jesus, for saving me. I don't care about them. I'm out of here. We're no different than the captain of the Cosa Concordia 2012, remember that? The Italian cruise boat. Crashes that thing. He abandons ship and leaves 32 people to sink to the bottom of the ocean and die. How pathetic is that? And Jesus says, listen, the world is going to grow more and more and more tumultuous. The world is going to increasingly hate you for your message. While all this is going on, you will have unprecedented opportunity to share the reason for the hope that you have. How can you be at peace when all this is happening? And you get to say, I I have a hope. And it's it's Jesus. You've got the lifeboat. You've got the answer. Bear witness. Here's the last one. When the world falls apart, we endure with hope. Look at 18 and 19 with me, if you would. He says, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. Well, he says this in this context to his disciples, and all of them except John will be martyred for their faith. Which is, by the way, more circumstantial evidence for the reality of our faith. I mean, who is going to die for something that they made up? And all of them, except for one, and he kind of did die. He was exiled to an island, and so I think essentially he was martyred. You're going to get all of them to die for it? I mean, at least one, two, five, half of them would bail if they made it up, but they didn't because it's real. And these guys go on and, and, and die. Yet here Jesus says, not a hair of your head will perish. Uh Uh-oh, got a problem. What's he talking about then? Is he talking about their physical bodies? No, everybody dies. That's part of reality. He's talking about eternity. He's talking about the reality that though you die, yet you shall live, the Bible says. And so press on with hope. Live a life of risk. You can live as a Christian almost as though you're invincible. Because what are they going to do? What's the worst thing they could do? Kill me? Jesus says, don't fear those people who can kill you. 
Fear him who can judge you, kill you, and then sentence you to hell. Live for me, he says. That's why Paul says to live is Christ, but to die? It's gain. It's even better. (laughs) That's how you explain the explosive growth of the Christian faith after Jesus died. He dies on the cross, and rather than saying, oh my goodness, it's over, and as Rome and Jerusalem thought they ended the thing, it exploded. Why? Because they said, what are you going to do, kill us? And they tried, and they did, but not eternally. And our faith didn't shrink as you killed off the Christians. What happened? It grew. Because people said, these people really, really, really believed this, that they would die for it. The seasons of the church's greatest growth are the seasons of the church's greatest persecution. And that's why Christian America, I use quotes, I use that lightly, the faith is declining. Why? Because we're so stinking comfortable. That's why you look at the other countries in the world where there's persecution and what's happening? It's exploding. What happened in China? It's amazing. It's amazing. So, what are you going to do? Kill us? can't touch a hair on my head you have eternal hope you can endure and you're going to experience all kinds of pain he says but know this revelation 21 death shall be no more and neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away so listen christian it's going to be crazy he never promised an easy life but you can endure in hope you can press on in hope. Would you guys close your eyes? Just close your eyes for a moment if you would. I'd love to respond to some of Jesus' very stern words here. We always need to respond to the scriptures. And so how do we respond this morning? First of all, some of us need to avoid destruction. I don't say that lightly. I don't enjoy firm words to my kids. I don't enjoy firm words to you, to be completely honest. But I do it because I believe this. How do you avoid eternal destruction? How do you be made right with God? It's by trusting in Jesus. He absorbed the eternal wrath of God on the cross. He himself said, greater love is no one than this and that he would lay down his life for his friends. So yes, wrath because he's just, but also incredible mercy and love shown for you on the cross. He loves you. He's rescuing you. There's nothing I wouldn't do for my kids. He loves you with that kind of love. So I want to ask you, would you If you've never given your life to Jesus, the Bible says if you call on the name of the Lord, you'll be saved. Be made right with God. Your sin will be taken care of. The wrath is gone forever. You're going to keep sinning. You're going to keep messing up. And it's gone. It's, It's gone. Because you've trusted in Jesus who paid the final payment for your sin. The perfect one who died for you. And what he asks of you is to trust him to turn from being the master, the Lord of your own life and trust in him. And so would you do that this morning if you haven't? It's not something you do over and over and over again. It's a one-time thing. You call upon the name of the Lord and you're saved, he says. 
You pass from death to life, the Bible says. You move your citizenship from this earth to a citizenship of heaven for eternity. You go from being a wanderer to an adopted child of God. It's beautiful. Would you call upon the name of the Lord and be saved? Right now, all you have to do is call out to Jesus. And in your own words, tell him, God, I'm turning from sin. I'm turning to you. I'm trusting in what you have done for me. I want to follow you forever. As we respond, at some point, you, you pray to Jesus if you've never given your life to him. And then would you let us know? Come talk to me. Come talk to Pastor Ryan after. We would love to hear it. Communicate it on your card, but I'm going to give you time to pray in just a minute here. Others of you in here, you're a Christian. And I know this is heavy stuff, but you know that nothing matters more than Jesus. And you need to get your eyes fixed on him again. Best place to start is to confess your sin. And we're Christians and maybe we're not joining him on his rescue mission. It's kind of pathetic, isn't it? We've been saved, but we don't care about the others around us. It's a real problem. And then, Christians, many of you, you know the hope of Jesus. You just need to sit in and receive the hope that he offers you. Be encouraged to press on, to endure in hope. You talk to God. You respond how you need to respond. don't do enough of this. We don't sit still very frequently to think on weighty things. We're doing it now. And so God, would you stir our hearts? Would you, in this moment, show people how you've rescued them from sin? In this moment, would Christians return back to eyes fixed on you in this moment, would Christians be burdened for people around them that are, are far from God? In this moment, would Christians who are hurting endure and be just refreshed and have hope again in Jesus and your presence now and the hope of eternity? Do what you need to do as we respond. In Jesus' name.